pleasure to be here with you. Um, Andrew mentioned our, our church. It's a blessing. The people I love dearest and most in uh, my life, and many of them are students from here, or many of them are graduates from here, uh, many are staff members, faculty members, and uh, just an untold blessing in my life. So I'm grateful for you guys, and uh, it is a joy to be with you. So would you uh, bow with me as we pray before we get into God's Word this morning? Father, thank you for the great truths that we just had the privilege of singing. Particularly struck by the words of that last song of how you hold us. Father, we are so prone to wander. So many things grab our attention and our hearts and our minds. And yet, Father, you are the greatest and you are the most worthy of all of our affection and our thoughts and our praise. And Father, I pray at the beginning of this week, as it's Monday morning and so many things are waiting before us, that we might pause in these moments that we have together and really reflect upon the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the fact that uh, he holds us so tight and that, Father, as we think about even your mighty hand, nothing can pluck us out of that hand as well, and we rejoice in that truth. So we open your word this morning, Father. Help us to come with humble hearts that are quick and eager to submit to the truths that we find there. May you instruct us and minister to us the way that you always do through your word and through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at our church, we are currently studying through 1 Peter uh, together. We've been learning about a living hope in troubling times. And as we've gone through that study together, uh, I have been particularly thinking a lot about the author of that letter, Peter himself. Um, perhaps Peter is intriguing to me because in many ways uh, I'm guessing he was the opposite of me. Uh, I grew up that very shy kid in school, you know, who mostly kept to himself and, um, you know, was pretty reserved as I grew up. Lots of times if, you know, you would hear people describe me, they would use words like, oh, he's steady and stable and reliable and all of those sort of things. And if you've spent any time looking at Peter's life, uh, he was about the opposite of my temperament. Uh, type A personality, driven, big person, big voice in the room. He was a leader who wore it all on his sleeves. And as I've been thinking a lot about Peter of late in my studies, I was told that your theme here um, this year is Christ is all. And... Um, I started to think about what God did in that man's life, the Apostle Peter, to take him from that rough and tough sailor fisherman to making him one who, as church tradition would tell us, would give his life for Jesus, dying a death by crucifixion upside down for the glory of God. What happened in his life that brought him to such a point where Christ truly was all, even to his very last breath. What happened that brought him to a point where Jesus truly was everything for him? And what I'd like to do this morning is to examine just three events that happened in Peter's life that I think were really 
formational in that change process for him. Um, three events that I think really started to mark him and change him and turn him into a man who probably was mostly governed by his own self-interest into becoming a pillar of the church. Um, so if you would, turn with me first to Luke chapter 5. So turn in there, I'll remind you as we go through these sections of Scripture and we look into these events in Peter's life that the Scripture has given us these by way of example for us. And while the story is about Peter, any time that you're reading through these, if you're anything like me, you'll find yourself in the story somewhere. I pray that that will happen as we look through this. As you're getting there, I want you to think a little bit about what Peter's life was like before Jesus came into it. He was a fisherman by trade. Um, a fisherman during this particular day was a man's man. Peter, if you were to shake his hand, it would have been one of those big calloused hands. I grew up in farm country in uh, Ohio, and you could always tell when you shook the hand of a farmer. It was markedly different from anybody else. And Peter's hands from all those years of working with the ropes and all the other things on the boat would have been calloused, big, strong hands. He was a brave man who risked his life often on a sea that was known to gather up underneath the wind and bring in storms that would cause fear even to experienced sailors. He was the leader of his team, which was a pretty um, rough and tough team. Some guys on the team were, had the nickname Sons of Thunder. I'm guessing they got that because they weren't the most meek and mild men. And Peter was the leader of all of them. I, I imagine Peter being one of those guys where if you had to walk through a dark alley in the middle of Los Angeles at the middle of the night, you'd want Peter by your side. He was just that kind of guy. We find him in Luke chapter 5 coming in from a long night's toil of his profession on the boat. Uh, he's been out all night long. That's when fishermen would do their work in the darkness of the night and seeking to pull in these fish. And he'd had a pretty unsuccessful evening. And I'm sure he's come in on this particular occasion pretty exhausted, pretty frustrated. He's probably ready to put the whole thing behind him, go back to his wife, maybe get some rest in his bed. But in our story, we'll find that Jesus changed his plans. It says this at the beginning of Luke 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he said, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they were beginning to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. I'll just stop there in our story, if you will. The crowd's pressing in on Jesus, who's teaching them. And Jesus sees this boat there on the shore, which just so happens to be Peter's. And uh, he actually gets in the boat. He doesn't ask Peter first. He's, the text lets us know he's actually getting in there and saying, hey, uh, Peter, take, take me out there so that I can teach the crowd. Now, the text doesn't let us know what Peter's thinking at this particular point. It's silent. But I know what I would be thinking. I'd be thinking, I'm tired. I've been out all night long. I'm ready to go home. The, the last thing that I want to do is go back out onto the water. Yet, Peter obeys. And he takes him out into the water. Now, this is just a side little truth before we get to the big point of this, but I, I do think in our lives that this is often how things work with our relationship with Jesus. That oftentimes Jesus asks us to do something that seems a little bit small, perhaps maybe even a little bit inconvenient. And if we would only know where he eventually wants us to get, we would understand that it's totally worth the obedience. Peter didn't know what was coming. Peter didn't know that his life was about ready to change. But just simply, he obeyed and he took Jesus out and he listened to Jesus while Jesus preached to the people. Uh, when it was done, I'm sure Peter was thinking, okay, good, I finally get to go home. You know, I go see my wife, I can relax. But Jesus isn't done with him yet. He turns to him and he says, uh, Peter, I want you to go out there one more time and, and cast that net. Uh, now we start to get a little bit of what's going on in Simon's heart. You can almost hear it when he responds, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. I just heard you teach you're a great teacher, but I know fishing and this isn't how it works. Thank you, Andrew, for saying I'm a better fisher of men than fisher of fish. It's true. I know more about that than fishing. And Peter's going the opposite way. I say, you're obviously a great teacher, Jesus, but this is ridiculous. I've been out all night long. This is a waste of my time. And yet I can only imagine that Jesus just continued to look at him and Peter realized that he wasn't going to win this argument. And he says, but at your word... I will let down the nets. Another just simple act of obedience, maybe not even motivated from the purest of hearts here. Of course, you heard the story when they did so, the nets come up filled with fish so much so that they're breaking and they need two boats to bring them in. And what strikes me about this particular story is how Peter responds. Did you notice it? Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I don't know when you, that's kind of surprising. Um, you would have anticipated when he, when he saw that he, he would 
be excited about all the, the, the fish that were caught, perhaps impressed by all that was taking place, and yet what happened in this moment is he falls down at Jesus' knees. And he makes this declaration about his own sinfulness. What it reminds me of is Isaiah 6, where you remember when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. And when he saw the glory of the Lord, the very first thing that he realized was how sinful he was. Sin on his lips and the sins of his people. In many ways, what I think we're seeing here for Peter is that he now has a new glimpse of the glory and the power and the awe of Jesus. And standing in the presence of this one who he now sees as glorious, it changes the way that he views himself. I'm going to guess before this, Peter was not lacking for self-confidence. I don't think people probably would have described him as a humble man. But standing in the presence of the glory of Jesus, everything changed for him. This is the first big truth I think we see from this, where it all started for Peter. And that is if Christ is going to be your all, You must see him in all his glory and therefore view yourself just simply as an object of his immeasurable grace. Peter grabbed a hold of this. He knew that he was in the presence of one that was glorious and awesome and amazing. Let me just speak personally to you because I've been where you're at right now in a Christian university where you have the privilege of taking Bible classes, of being at chapel, of interacting with glorious truths about Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And the temptation is, if you're not careful, for what should evoke awe in your heart can become commonplace. Don't let that happen. Don't allow that familiarity with continually being exposed to the glories and the wonder of Jesus to just become that which you, eh, I heard that before. It doesn't leave you once you leave a Christian university to struggle even for a pastor as you're constantly in God's word to instead of be thinking about the next point or the next outline or the next piece of information you can use in your counseling session to just be mesmerized by the glory of Jesus and to be in awe of him. Peter grabbed a hold of this, the very beginning of his time. And, you know, Peter will have lots of ups and downs. His Life following Jesus is charted out like the Rocky Mountains, but here we start to get a glimpse of the fact that he truly saw Jesus as something glorious, someone to be worshipped and in awe of. And for us, it needs to start there as well. 
Well, this is how it began for him. And you know how the story ends. We see in the text here that Jesus decides that he's going to be fishers of men rather than his previous profession. And it says in 11 that when they brought in their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so Peter's journey began with Jesus. The next place I want to take you is actually in John's gospel. If you turn over to John chapter 6, I want to share with you what I'm labeling here a pivotal moment. It's not one of the more famous scenes in Peter's life. But I do think it was a pivotal moment and it teaches us something important as we think about making Christ our all. Let me give you a little background where we find ourselves in our story here. Jesus has been gaining in popularity. People are gathering to hear him teach, but maybe even more so to see his miracles. In fact, this is coming on the heels where he's just fed 5,000 plus. Um, and it was a beautiful miracle, but it was also one that the people greatly enjoyed, obviously getting a free lunch. And what has begun to happen is that the people are following him everywhere, waiting for the next miracle, waiting for the next meal. Uh, Jesus has sought solace. He actually walked on the water right before this in the middle of the night to the disciples. And the people still find him, are crowding in. They, they want him to do another miracle, to, to give them more bread and, and food. And Jesus takes the opportunity in typical Jesus fashion where he preaches a very difficult message to them. He calls himself, he says, really, you guys are laboring for the, fruit, or the food that perishes when you have the, the bread in front of you that can give you eternal life. And he declared to them, I am the bread from heaven. I, I am the bread of life. And, and as he starts to declare these powerful truths to the people, he can tell the people are kind of getting restless. Like, wait, wait a minute, we know that this guy was born, we know his, we know his parents, what in the world is he talking about? But Jesus doesn't backtrack and try to explain himself. He just keeps pressing further and further. He says in chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Wow, when was the last time you heard a preacher say that? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... To a Jewish audience who knew that they weren't allowed to drink blood, Jesus says these words. And it shouldn't surprise us, by the time we get to verse 60, it says, many of the disciples heard it and said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And they're starting to grumble amongst themselves about this difficult teaching that Jesus is saying. And Jesus continues to to press deeper and deeper in this and reminding him that the words that he teaches are spiritually and that only God is the one that's drawing people. But what strikes me about the story as we come to verse 66 is after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The crowd started to thin out after this message. Those who called themselves followers of Jesus packed up their bags and they went home. Um, not exactly the way that most preachers want to conclude their message. People, heads hung low, 
and walking away, disgusted by what they heard. The text says in verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, he looked at his disciples and he asked them a very pointed question. He says, do you want to go away as well? Wow, what an interesting question that Jesus asked the 12. Are you guys going to leave as well? There's so many texts in Scripture that remind us of this interesting interplay of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. This is certainly one of them, because if you've read the Gospels, you know that, that Jesus has chosen these 12, and that the 11 faithful, besides the one that he knew would betray him, he knows he's going to keep to the end. He's going to hold them, like we sang about. But at the same time, he requires his 12 to make a decision of, are you or are you not going to follow me? It was a real question. It wasn't a hypothetical one. Are you guys going to walk away now, too? The text says that Simon Peter spoke up on behalf of the group. And he said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, where, where else can we turn to besides you? You have what we need. We believe that you're the Holy One of God. And it's interesting, he has this next phrase. We've come to know this. We have experienced it as we walk with you. Where else could I possibly go? Here's the big truth I think we learn from this second snapshot into his life. That if Christ is going to be all to you, we must convince our minds that we truly need him. Self-sufficiency creeps into the hearts of all of us if we don't remind ourselves often that without him we have nothing. We're so tempted to think that we can just add him to all of the other great things that we already possess. But that's not the way that it works for people who've truly made Christ all. Peter declared what should be the truth of all of our hearts. Where else? To whom else could we possibly turn? Oh, we need you, Jesus. At the deepest, most important level of my life, I need you. And there is no one and nothing else that I can turn to. Now, most of us affirm that reality. I hope that's true of you here this morning, but it is so hard to live your life out that way. There are so many other things that we convince ourselves that we need. So many other things that will try to grab pieces of your heart, of your passion. But here Peter models for us a beautiful dependence and need upon the Savior 
But he knows that Jesus provides what no one else could possibly give him. Oh, that that would be true of us. That we would never believe the lies of our heart that something else will satisfy like he can. It's a beautiful moment, a pivotal moment in Peter's life and in the twelve as they continue to follow him. Let's fast forward to the end of the story for Peter, at least in the Gospels. If you would, turn with me to John 21. You're all aware of Peter's colossal failure at the end of his life. Peter is confident that he is going to follow Jesus even if it means death. In fact, he's so confident that he has boldly proclaimed that with his lips. Yet Jesus tells him, before this night is up, you're going to deny me three times. And that rooster is going to crow. I'm sure Peter didn't believe that at the time, but as all of us know, that's exactly what happened. He crumbled under pressure. He completely fell apart when the heat was turned up. And when he heard that rooster crow, I'm sure that Peter's heart was crushed by shame. Now here's a truth about Peter. I don't think he would have liked to hear it during his life to this point, but by and large to this point in Peter's life, he was what we call in the sports world a choker. What I mean by that is the person where when the pressure gets turned up, they perform poorly. The person who short arms the free throw at the end of the game. You know, the one who stands up for that putt and only gets it halfway to the cup on the important hole. That was Peter. I mean, think about his life, if you would. When he got out of that boat to walk to Jesus, when he got out there amongst the waves, he ended up nearly drowning. When he saw Jesus' glory at the transfiguration, he ruined the whole scene by trying to put Jesus in a box alongside of Moses and Elijah. When Jesus was about to be arrested and having already been instructed that this wasn't going to be a night of violence, Peter decided to commandeer a sword and yet missed his target and merely sliced off the ear of a gentleman, which caused Jesus to have to put it back on. He talked a big talk at the end of his life about his courage and how he would follow Jesus to the end, but he couldn't stand up to a servant girl later on that evening. The truth is that when the pressure was up in Peter's life, he often choked. Now here's the beautiful thing about God's grace and what he does in a person's life. Do you realize that God took a notorious choker, somebody who usually fell apart when pressure came, and used that person to write the most important book in the New Testament on learning to live life under pain and suffering? What an incredible thing. That God took a notorious person who said, when the heat is on, man, that guy seems to fall apart. And he would become the author of 1 Peter about being steadfast when times are hard. How did that happen? I think what happens in this story here starts to explain a little bit how that happened. 
We find ourselves here, Jesus having died on the cross, risen from the grave. He's already appeared to the disciples a couple times, but there's been no mention of Peter in these first couple of appearances. And as we come to chapter 21 of John, we find a scene that's very similar to the first scene that I shared with you. Peter's gone back to what's familiar to him. I'm sure he feels like he's flunked out of discipleship school. And he's returned to the boat. And much like our first scene, he's been out all night long and he's caught nothing and he's coming back into shore. It is a very similar scene to where it all began for him. We'll pick up in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. <laughs> the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Once again, Jesus performs a very similar miracle to where it all began for Peter. Peter's coming in. Hey, we've worked all night. There's no fish out here. Jesus says, hey, why don't you cast one more time? Just do it on the right side of the boat. And they do so, and we find out in the text 153 big fish like are just miraculously there. Sorry for those poor fish. They were called by Jesus for a pretty important illustration on this day. And they're all there, and they pull them up, and the disciples realize that that man who they didn't know that was standing on the shore, that must be Jesus. And I love Peter's response. He just flops into the water to try to get to Jesus as fast as he can. Now, I don't know if that was the fastest way to Jesus. I don't know how great of a swimmer he was. I don't know who got there first, the boat or Peter. But you've got to love Peter's passion here. Where he just I mean, if that is Jesus... I mean, he just flings himself out there into the water. And he's flopping as fast as he can to get there. And when he gets there, he realized that Jesus has already prepared a breakfast for them. The fire is going, which I'm sure was nice for him since he's soaking wet at this particular point. The fish are on. Breakfast is about ready to be served. And then there is this Wonderful scene between Jesus and Peter. Let me read it for you in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had to say to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, here we have what's oftentimes referred to as the 
reaffirming of Peter for ministry. Can you imagine how awkward it must have been for Peter to have to look into the eyes of Jesus after what had taken place on that fateful night? I'm going to guess that uh, Peter's eyes were down a lot on that first visit. Yet here Jesus is, and not once, not twice, but three times, he publicly reaffirms Peter for ministry. It doesn't take a mathematician to see what's going on here. He's matching Peter's three denials with three affirmations that Jesus isn't done with him yet. That there's still ministry ahead for him. That he still called him to be a fisher of men, not a fisher of fish. Some of you that are Greek students know the wordplay that's going on here. Jesus asked him the first time, do you love me, agape me? The highest, committed, never-ending kind of love. And Peter, unfortunately, has to respond honestly, no, I phileo you, I I, I love you, you know that, but I, I cannot assent to the fact, especially looking at my behavior, that I agape you. The first question is interesting. He says, do you agape me more than these? Most, as I do, think it's a reference to the fish and all of his fishing paraphernalia there. Peter, is this really what you're going to do for the rest of your life? You're just going to go back to the boats? Back to what's familiar and comfortable for you. Peter's affirmation of his love lets Jesus say to him, "Then this is not what I want you to do. I want you to feed my lambs. He asks him again, do you agape me? And once again, Peter has to be honest. And he says, no, I, you, you know the truth. I phileo you. And it's this third exchange that breaks Peter's heart, because finally he says, well, do you at least phileo me? And he's grieved on this third one of recognizing just the inaccuracy of what's in his own heart. He says, Lord, you know everything, and you know what's true inside of me. Yes, I do. And he gives them the third reminder, well, then feed my sheep. Um, you know, what happened in this moment was a painful moment for Peter. I'm sure of that. Uh, I, I'm sure that it was hard for him to walk through this, but it was a beautifully gracious thing that Jesus was doing for him as he was publicly reaffirming him that the story wasn't over for him, even though he was a choker, even though he had blown it, even though he hadn't made a mess of things. Jesus wasn't done with him yet. And Peter would end up preaching the message at Pentecost that would see the church birthed. He would become a pillar for that church. He would author first Peter about how to stand firm under trials. He would ultimately die a martyr's death for Jesus. Yes, Jesus still had much in store for him. But on this particular day, Peter had to be broken before he could be used. There had to be a sense that this Peter who was so self-confident and so self-reliant was broken of all of that 
and realized that his only hope, his only strength, his only everything was provided through Jesus himself. This is the third big truth, that if Christ is going to be all to you, then you can't get in the way anymore. We must rid ourselves of this temptation to think that we have something in us that he needs. A.W. Tozer once said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Nancy Gunthery once said, This truth is true, that we want our grand abilities and keen insights to make us usable to God, not our broken hearts and crippling weaknesses. But this is the very truth that Jesus is trying to teach to Peter. I don't want your self-confidence. I don't want your supposed strength. I want your brokenness and your weakness. And I want you to lay it all at my feet and see what I'll do through you. This is what he wants from us. Peter learned it and it changed everything for him. He went from being a notorious choker to one who stood fast for Jesus to the very end. Because he was no longer doing it in his own confidence, thinking that he had it in himself to accomplish it. No, he was a broken man before Jesus. Knowing that Jesus was his hope. So I ask you this morning as we kind of wrap up, do you truly want Christ to be your all? If you do, then never cease to stand in awe of his glory. Yes, it will make you uncomfortable. It always does. But it is so worth it. Also, shun those lies that your heart tells you that you can get by without him. You truly have no place to turn but to him. Whatever your heart tells you that this will be enough for you, it is just simply a lie. Believe in the deepest recess of your heart that he is all that you need. And finally, lovingly follow him, not in your own strength, but by the very power that he himself provides. And when we do these things, God can take a person who's rough around the edges, perhaps maybe even a notorious choker, and he can shine through in amazing ways and tell a beautiful story that brings glory to his great name. May that be true of each and every one of us, even this day and even this week. Father, we're grateful for the way that you work in a human heart to bring us to a point where we are useful in your hands. Father, we're grateful for even the example of Peter And how you can take a man like that and you can transform him into a man who is gratefully useful to your church and one who brings great glory to your awesome name. Father, I pray for all of the hearts represented in this room this morning. Father, for those areas of our heart where If we're honest, we're not able to say Christ is all. He is supreme. 
Pray, Father, that we would surrender those things. We would do the surgery that's needed to remove them from our hearts and allow your son Jesus to sit on his rightful throne again. Father, I pray that you might work in each and every heart in here to bring us to the point that we see you as what we need most in life. That we would stop trying to accomplish things in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom. But in brokenness, allow you to work through us and accomplish what we could never do on our own. Father, we know that that really is the beautiful life. It's the blessed life that you've called us to. I pray that you might help each and every one of us to live surrendered lives like that to your son. We pray this in his name.